everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. I'm back again with another episode of Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast. And this week, we have a good friend that's been with us for a while. This is Dr. Vikram Baliga. Say hi. Hello, everyone. By the way, I'm so excited about this. <laughs> I'm so excited. This is the crossover. Well, so I won't say the crossover event of the century because we have collaborated before. Yep. Last year, I came on to your podcast, Planthropology, which was a delightful time. It was really fun. So that's a little bit of a spoiler alert. Vikram <laughs> is the, the artist behind Planthropology. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, sure. So I'm, you know, general plant nerd guy. I started that sh the show Planthropology just because I was having a nerdy plant conversation with a friend one day. And I was like, this should be a podcast. And we both <laughs> laughed about it because we were like, nobody cares about plants that much. And then I, it wouldn't go away. You know, it just stuck <laughs> in my brain. So I talked to plant people, nature people in general, just about like what they do, why they like to do what they do, what they studied, how they got there. And so like, it's a science show, but we don't necessarily like we talk about science, but the, the main point is actually more of the people that are studying the things. And so like, we kind of get some science along the way, but it's been a lot of fun to do. I think uh, I th the best compliment I get from people sometimes is like, I didn't know I cared about plants. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then after that, I'm like, good, I have, I have done my job. Mm -hmm. It's humanizing, too, I feel like. Plants are so far removed from humans on the tree of life that it can be really difficult for you to, like, relate to plants. Yeah, and that's kind of the point. Like, you know, it's almost like we're too used to plants. I, I say this from current personal experience. If your kid has, like, a pile of Legos on the floor somewhere and it's in a place where you don't step on it, you walk by it every day. <laughs> And you just stop noticing it, right? It just, after a while, for, at least for me, it just goes away. And it's like, I think we always see plants in the background. You know, there, there's a tree in your yard. You've got some grass. You've got like a park. But like, kind of like you were saying, they're so alien to us, like mm. the way they work and all of that kind of stuff that I think it's a good like gateway into this whole other part of science and biology that is like crucial to our lives that most people just don't ever think about. So yeah, being able to talk to all the nerds out there that like devote their lives to these things. Um, I, like you said, it kind of humanizes it and it gives people sort of an in. So tell me a little bit about the work that you do with plants and how you got into this work in this research. So uh, I am a PhD in horticulture and uh, most of my research and most of my work has been in water conservation. I studied landscape design in my bachelor's. I was I studied olive trees for my master's and then uh, turf grass kind of for my PhD. But really, like uh, most of my work has been, OK, I live in a part of the country that's very dry. You know, we have very limited water resources. And sometimes, depending on who I'm talking to, when I talk about water conservation, they're like, you know, we had a hurricane blow through and got 60 inches of rain last week. What are you talking about? But for us... Like, we're super dry. Like, we got probably half of our annual rainfall in the past week and a half, you know, for, for this part of Texas. And um, so that's always been a big deal to me being from this area. So I now am a uh, introductory horticulture teacher at Texas Tech University. So I kind of run our intro horticulture program. It's mostly non-majors, like 95% non-majors who are taking the class because they need a science credit. <laughs> and someone told them it was easy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I see that on evaluations all the time. Like, I thought this was going to be easy. And, it, and it's not hard, but it's not as easy as people expect. 
And uh, I get the opportunity to try to convince people there, too, that don't think they care about plants, that they should care about plants in the environment. And that's important to me. And then I also, for the rest of my job, that's about half my job, I also run our teaching greenhouse and horticultural gardens on campus here. So uh, I am pretty much all plants all the time, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of like hands-on work with the plants too, you know. It's not just necessarily like about the theoretical side of things. It's like you're like actually in there tending to the the plant babies. (laughs) Yeah, and it's, you know, it kind of scratches that itch for me because I I got into horticulture because I like working with plants and uh, I ran a landscape company for a couple of years and I played with plants all the time. And then sometimes in education, we tend to uh, drift away from the practical side of the, some of the stuff that we love in, in academia. So this kind of lets me teach. It lets me do outreach and it lets me actually play with plants. And so for me, I, this is kind of like <laughs> sometimes I feel like I cheated and just like lucked into <laughs> the perfect job for me. <laughs> you had to carve out your niche. Yeah, and it took some time. It took some time and a a lot of pulling leaves off of olive trees and walking around in the grass, you know, but we got there. Oh, what bliss, though. (laughs) It's pretty cool. And what's actually cool is when I started Planthropology, like in the fall of 2019, I kind of didn't ask anyone. I just sort (laughs) of did it. Um, And luckily, our department chair had just started and he he's really big on public outreach and public education and sort of like closing this feedback loop between uh, academia and the public. Uh, So not only did he not fire me, which I was appreciative of, (laughs) uh, he actually worked it into my job description. So like I get to like podcast at work as part of my job and uh, it's a great like outreach tool. Uh, It's a great just way to show current prospective students like what they could do in the field and I, I like to think of it as that everything I do is is for education um, I feel like that's my job is to be like a front door for our department and for the science and I do the best job I can it takes a certain type of enthusiasm and you're just the perfect person oh, for well, it, that, so. that means a lot and, and I want to say before we really get into this that like you were such a big friend and inspiration as I was starting out. Like we found each other on Twitter. I think you probably found me on Twitter because <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. But but you've been such a good friend and inspiration and sounding board over the past two years that I I, I really appreciate you. It's us uh, nature podcasters got to stick together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, so, you know, when you first started out, you had me on to talk about animals. And we talked a lot about animals that had interesting relationships with plants. I remember we talked about like sloths that grow algae in their fur, damselfish that build gardens. And we we talked about like the animal sort of side of things because... I think it's so important. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, this is probably a weird episode to start with because (laughs) usually we talk about animals, but when you're zooming out and you're looking at the whole environment and the ecosystem that the animal lives in, you're not going to have a complete picture without also talking about the plants that they share that space with. Because I would imagine other than maybe, I don't know, deep sea environments and maybe like extreme desert environments plants are going to play a huge role. Even in desert environments, you're going to get like plants that are going to factor into the ecosystem. So like you can't really have a complete picture of what's going on with animals without also talking about plants. Uh, so here we are today to talk about what's going on with plants. If this is your first time listening, we review animals by rating them out of 10 in different categories. And the first category we usually talk about is effectiveness, which is physical adaptations to the 
I'm just going to say being because we're not talking about animals today, right. um, to the being's body that let it do a really good job of the things it's trying to do. For animals, we're usually talking about predation or evading predation or, you know, things that are, things that are letting it survive and thrive in the place it's living. Plants have to do the same thing, right? They have to adapt to their bodies, I suppose. Do you call them bodies? Like, is that a, an analogous term? Huh. I guess I have honestly, it's funny. I've been studying plants for 15 years and I have never actually thought about that. We'll go with yes. I like it. Well, it's it's close <laughs> enough that I think that that works. But like plants ha are under the same pressure that animals are under. Like they right. have to adapt their bodies to survive and thrive where they're at. So I know you're going to be hard pressed to give <laughs> plants a rating for effectiveness, but I wanted to kind of talk about like plants that you feel really exemplify this category, like plants that have maybe really done the most okay. to adapt their body to thrive under the conditions they're in. Can you think of any like really good examples and what would you give them for effectiveness? So one of my favorite plants is the bristlecone pine. So these are trees that live up in the uh, Great Basin and in California and in parts of Nevada. Uh, you'll find them in Yellowstone and, and a lot of national parks. These trees live for... We actually don't know what their upper limit is. Uh, the oldest one they found is 5,000-ish years old. That's so many. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> and if you think about human history, uh, it, it's mind-boggling. Were we even, like, writing uh, Not very like... well, you know? Uh, uh, like, there were peoples here on, on in North America when these trees were, were here, but they've seen, like civilizations come and go like single trees there's one called prometheus that's like 4700 years old and there's one that's called methuselah that's over 5000 years old and that's such an apt name yeah i know <laughs> i know but we don't know how old they can get because these trees are still living and we don't have that history you know but if you look at them they're these weird scraggly trees they you know they're not huge they may have a big trunk but they're probably only 20 feet tall at the outside and they'll have these these little tufts of um pine needles on them and the bark twists and turns and they're almost like weird art pieces and if you think of just like a scraggly pine uh, you know a lot of people have seen probably a picture of these without realizing it but they have all of these cool adaptations to live at high elevations in sometimes terrible climates, you know, in terrible conditions, the bark, as it grows and twists, they grow so slowly that they get these really, really tight grain patterns. Like the, the wood is just super dense. So in fact, as they were trying to figure out how old some of these are, um, they use like a, like essentially a big drill to take a core out of the center of the tree and then they count the rings. Like some of these trees were so dense that they were just breaking all these bits that are designed to go through trees um, because this wood is so dense and so well packed, but it keeps essentially all the like living parts of the tree insulated from the weather. It allows oxygen and different things to move through the plant and it keeps insects out. So insects that would normally just totally devastate other species of pine, pine bark beetles, some other stuff, they kind of don't have any activity in these trees um, because they have one very dense bark and two chemical defenses that will either repel the insects completely or as the insect starts to chew into the tree it dies because it has all these turpentines and all these different chemicals i read a really cool study that if you look at the movement of some of these insects they think that at the towards the end of the last ice age these insects got pushed out of the great basin area where a lot of these 
trees grow and new tree species came up and all of that. But as the climate changes, these insects are moving back into that original range. And all of these other shorter lived tree species are super susceptible because they've never seen these insects before. But the bristlecone pines have genetic adaptive memory for tens of thousands of years because they live so long that they're still resistant to these insects that haven't been present for millennia in that area. And it's really cool to think about. That is a very tanky sort of tree, right? Like, it is. It's like, a, it's like a fortified steel armor tree. Yeah. Oh, and, and I love them. And again, they're not, you know, it, it's funny because I was thinking about some different plants. And if you think about them from the aesthetics that you, you know, rank things on, they're kind of weird looking. They're not like a pretty majestic tree, but like I give them a 10 out of 10 for adaptation because they, they've kind of seen a lot of stuff come and go and they keep going. So timeless. Timeless. They're unbothered. Yeah. That reminds me of like the Ents from the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, they're like, we've been here for so long that we literally don't care what you guys are we up to. We just don't care. <laughs> you, you guys do what you want. Uh, and, yeah. And I like to think, you know, when in the movie he picks up the two hobbits and he said, well, that doesn't make any sense to me, but you two are very small. Uh, <laughs> like, that, that resonates for me that it's like, oh, you humans do what you want. We'll be here. Whatever. We don't care. <laughs> you're kind of cute. I yeah. Guess. <laughs> you're adorable. I, we don't care about you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What's interesting is that like when we're talking about animals, typically with animals that are prey species, they would really prefer to not be eaten. Right. Like being eaten is an undesirable outcome for them. But then there's a lot of plants that offer parts of themselves like, ooh, this is good. You, I want you to eat this because that's how their seeds get dispersed. Right? Exactly. You know, yeah. Like fruits and stuff that they're, the plant is kind of like incentivizing, like, yes, please consume. <laughs> so, you know, like I think that's interesting because coming from like talking about animals that don't want to be eaten, then you get plants that are like, please, please eat and disperse my seeds for me. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, when you talk about pollination strategies, some of them are real weird, because they they live in these environments and they co evolve with a variety of insects based on what's there. And the lengths that some plants go through <laughs> to get <laughs> pollinated. <laughs> um there is a uh, Amazon water lily or a giant water lily. It's a uh, scientific name is Victoria Amazonica. And it's this big like, you know, if you think of like from any cartoon, a lily pad that's like eight feet across, you know, that people are that's what they're talking about. There's a giant oh, lily. I love those. It's and they're so cool, right? I come from like a background of playing video games my whole life. I see those. I immediately think like I need to jump across those to get to the next level or something. A hundred percent. Like, like, yeah, I need to not get eaten by a crocodile or hit by a car and I can get across. It's like Frogger, like extreme, right? One's a little different colored. You're like, oh, I can interact with that one. <laughs> one of them has like some glowy things coming up out of the middle of it. You're like, ooh. Achievement. Um, <laughs> Uh, but these are so these grow in uh, fairly stagnant water, even though they like lakes and uh, marshes, although they can live in moving water to a certain extent. Uh, but they can grow like 20 inches a day. And they have these great big flowers. Uh, they're beautiful flowers, usually about eight to 10 inches across that are pollinated by beetles. And so to produce a fruit and seeds, they have to be pollinated first. So 
they produce this like really fragrant, sugary, like nectar down in the flower uh, to attract the beetles because they will crawl in there to get the nectar. Um, they'll collect pollen and they move on. But this plant, it's really strange. So flowers in terms of like, you know, we talk sometimes in in animals about like sexual dimorphism, how like the males are very different from the females uh, or they're, you know, distinctly separate. A lot of plants don't really do that. They'll have uh, male and female reproductive structures on the same flower or on the same plant. This one does them kind of sequentially. So the lotus flower starts off as female and it opens at night and it releases this fragrance and this nectar and the beetles crawl in there. Well, the flower stays open at night and then as soon as sunlight starts coming in, the flowers close up and trap those beetles inside. <gasps> and they're just stuck in there, right? They're scrabbling. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, okay, so I came here for lunch and now I'm it's like, it's like if you go into a, a Wendy's and then they lock the doors and they're like, well, you're here all day. This is this is your life now. You, your name is Wendy now. Yeah, you are Wendy. <laughs> um, get in the back and start making more hamburgers, right? Like. <laughs> Part of the ship, part of the crew. <laughs> I like that a lot, actually. <laughs> I make a great t-shirt. Um, so while these beetles are trapped during that day, that so they open at night, that next day they close up. While those beetles are trapped in there, the plant actually changes from female to male. And those female reproductive structures that have been pollinated at this point start to close up, and it starts to produce pollen from the male reproductive structures. So there's this big shift. Well, as these beetles are, I'm sure, losing their minds trying to figure out how to get out, they're giving themselves covered in pollen. That next night, the flower opens back up and lets the beetles out, where there are other female flowers that are putting out that same pheromone to attract the beetles. Beetles are apparently not very smart. <laughs> so they go to the next flower, and then as they get trapped in there, they spread the pollen of the female reproductive structures, and it just goes on and on like that. But it's an adaptation to help protect these structures, but also make sure that they get pollinated. It's really fascinating. Going back to the, like, you go into a Wendy's and you get <laughs> locked in. It's hilarious to me to imagine, like, that whole ordeal, you get locked into the Wendy's, like, all day long, and then they finally open the doors and let you out, and you go, oh, thank God, that's over, and you walk out and go right into the next Wendy's. <laughs> like, you exactly. just pr proceed immediately to the next one you see. Like, gosh, I'm so glad that's over with. I'm really feeling like some Wendy's. <laughs> and that's, that is the 100% exactly what happens. <laughs> How do I keep getting here? <laughs> How does this keep happening I'm to me? I can't always believe stuck it. in a Wendy's. <laughs> but like, that's both diabolical and also quite clever of the flower. Like, yeah. You know, the thing that came to my mind that I thought you were going to talk about was, is it a pitcher plant? Yeah, they're wild too. <laughs> mm. So pitcher plants and a lot of carnivorous plants don't really have well-developed root systems. They're very old species generally, and they were around when roots didn't really work like they do today. They're a little bit different. And so as far as pulling nutrients up from the soil, you know, they live in marshes or swamps or actually there are pitcher plants, um, like field pitcher plants native to parts of Georgia and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the southeastern. Yeah, we got them here. Oh, that's cool. But some of these big ones, they don't really have another source of nitrogen. Because they're not getting it, like, from the soil? They don't get it from the soil, and they didn't co-evolve in a way that attracts a lot of insects. They don't have maybe the right chemicals and uh, the right, like... And a pitcher plant's kind of like a stomach. It's just a pitcher with digestive juices in it. Mm -hmm. So most of them, 
an insect falls in, gets digested. It's kind of metal. Plants are not like <laughs> kind necessarily. They're like, well, sorry, you fell in. I'm going to dissolve you I am going to disintegrate you though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's nice to have you. but and, and then they get their nitrogen that way. But these don't have that relationship with insects. So this shrew-like animal will crawl up there. They produce, it, it kind of looks like a toilet seat with a lid. In all honesty, it has like a little <laughs> lid on it and it's round like a toilet bowl. And they produce this like sugar water that the animal likes to drink and eat, like just as a source of nutrition. And so this this little shrew will crawl up there and start drinking the sugar water and then it poops into the pitcher. And uh, that's where the pitcher gets its nitrogen. You know, a coevolution's a heck of a thing. Yeah, because, you know, from the human perspective, it seems like evolving in such a way that your life is dependent on an animal pooping directly in your open mouth. <laughs> like, that seems so maladaptive. Like, that yeah, seems like, I'm out. Like, I, the, to us, that seems like that is a very undesirable outcome of evolution. But, you know, to plants, poop is great. You know, they see poop, yeah. they're like, yes, excellent. Gotta give me some of that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's true. And, you know, if we ever start evolving in that direction as humans, I'm just going to say we've had a good run. And let's just shut the whole thing down. <laughs> let's just be done. Yeah, let's that's, just be that's done. enough of all that. <laughs> like we've come so far that now poop is like undesirable to yeah. us, but plants are like, yes, yes, give me. Oh yeah, no, and you know, plants love manure, so I guess it. And and what's what's funny is we think like again, my knee jerk reaction is like that's super weird, and then I'll run out and put like cow manure on my garden, and it's the same thing. Right. It's the same thing. <laughs> that's one of those things that's like bringing human values into very non-human situations. You yeah. know, like to us, we're like, poop, icky, ew, gross. But, you know, like literally everything else that's not humans really doesn't care that much. No, it's just nitrogen. They're just, <laughs> yes. you know, we, we're we all chasing nitrogen. That's like mm -hmm. uh, nitrogen and carbon, right? That's what they make up amino acids and all the things that make our proteins that let us record podcasts. <laughs> and we just get them from Wendy's. <laughs> and we're gonna i'm gonna stick with this wendy's thing <laughs> they're not sponsoring this episode by the way they have not given me a dime oh should we you can bleep that so that people don't know what <laughs> restaurant we're talking about well i mean i don't know i was gonna say like it's a good thing they're not sponsoring this episode because i don't think they would want to be associated with the imagery of like them locking their customers in all day long. like i don't think that that is good that could for, be the, true. for i don't think that's good for brand building so maybe it's a good idea that, uh, that, that they don't know about true. this one that could be true <laughs> this one should stay off the wendy's radar yeah we'll, we'll try our best because they're they're brutal on social media so <laughs> they'll find us <laughs> they'll find us um but yeah so we we get our nitrogen source from food and then plants get them from wherever they can you know i was thinking about you know the bristlecone pine that has all of these sort of structures built into its body to help like repel insects or things that might harm it i was also thinking of like other plants that have developed this sort of like hostile architecture like on their body to like keep things away from them yeah so think of like cactus uh right. you know roses that have like thorns on their stems and things like that do plants often have to like find a middle ground between like keeping things away and also letting pollinators in that's a great question and yes absolutely and and again it all goes back to coevolution so there's there's this one plant and i'm definitely going to mispronounce the the scientific name <laughs> just say it confidently i even practiced but it's <laughs> dendrochnidae moroides it's called uh, a stinging bush or like in australia they call it a gimpy gimpy <gasps> i've heard of this have you heard of this it's yes. wild okay please tell me about it <laughs> okay 
So this plant, uh, it's indigenous to South Queensland in, in Australia, and it's found, and relatives are found in other places, in Indonesia and some other places. But it's this tree with big, like, kind of heart-shaped leaves that are sometimes up to, like, 10, 12 inches in, in diameter, and it's covered with toxic, stinging hairs. So, like, think of, like, a bee sting, but a 10-foot-tall tree absolutely covered in bee stings and it is the one of the most toxic like species of stinging trees in australia with strangely edible fruit that seems like such a weird category like the most toxic stinging tree i'm like i didn't know there were <laughs> enough that you could be the most of that <laughs> oh there's a bunch there's a bunch and they're they they do not care about our feelings <laughs> um, uh, so what's really interesting is this fruit is a lot like a mulberry. It looks just like a mulberry. It's juicy. It's bright pink or purple. And uh, it is also covered in these toxic hairs. Mm. But there are species of marsupials and some other animals that are totally resistant to this toxin. So they'll eat it pretty commonly. They're the main like spreaders of this plant. They can climb up the tree. But for a human and a lot of animals, even just brushing up against, and I've actually brushed up against one of these, it, it like just a little bit. We had one in the greenhouse for a while, and I got rid of it. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> that was probably a good call. <laughs> it was. Uh, someone gave it to me, to us. They were like, "This plant is really cool." And then I touched it. It was no lie. Like I've been stung by a like a yellow jacket, and it was way worse. Ugh. Way worse. So these. So this one's not going in the sensory garden. It's not. It's not. <laughs> well, no, no, it should not. Uh, all these little hairs are kind of like hypodermic needles, full of a neurotoxin. And so when you brush up against it, it sticks in your skin and just like injects this toxin that can last for days or years. Uh, there have been reports of people that like the pain went away. I think commonly it lasts for a couple of days. I know when I got it, like I could feel it kind of burning for about two days. Like there are reports of people that two years after being like stung by one of these, they would take a cold shower or something and it would kind of reactivate that toxin and they could feel it again. Mm. Um, so this plant has like these wild adaptations, like really wild adaptations <laughs> to try to keep itself from being eaten, except for by the one or two animals that digest the seeds correctly as mm. to not, you know, break them down too much, but enough and spread it in the way that the tree needs to be spread. And so there's just these really intricate relationships. But that's one that always comes to mind when people talk about, like, just angry trees. Like, it's just an angry tree. <laughs> I feel like the, the needles on the surface are like a bouncer. That's like, <laughs> all right, are you one of these couple of marsupials that can digest our seeds properly? You're good. You're good. Come on in. Oh, hold on one sec. Are you a human? Uh-uh. Sorry. Bee stings for you. Yeah, get out. <laughs> Release the bees. <laughs> <laughs> Release the bees. Uh, did you ever play Bioshock? Yeah. <laughs> just that's... <laughs> so for people that haven't you can get like a power up where you like essentially shoot bees at people <laughs> i don't know why they check you on the list they're like mm, human sorry you're not on the list you get the bees you i'm sorry the bees. <laughs> not the bees uh but yeah it's it's really pretty wild and you know we see lots of this um there's one called the sandbox tree that grows in parts of south america they've got fruit that look like small pumpkins also covered in spines, because I guess that's just how the plants do. But these seed pods are kind of spring-loaded. And so when they fall off the plant and hit the ground, they they pretty much explode. 
and they're covered in spines. So like animals and stuff trying to climb up the tree to get to it, they mostly can't do it. But because their defenses are so well adapted against pretty much every animal uh, that might spread the seed, they kind of do it themselves. They drop these these big fruits off, these pumpkin-like fruits. They hit the ground and explode, and they'll eject seeds out at about 150 miles per hour. Oh, this is a seed grenade. It's a seed grenade. (laughs) Uh, In fact, some people call it the dynamite tree uh, because when it hits the ground, it sounds like an explosion. And it'll eject these seeds uh, 60 to 100 feet away from the plant. And so they have this whole separate means of seed dispersal that has nothing to do with animals. They cut out the middleman. Exactly. (laughs) And, And in fact, they're they're so toxic and so like grumpy that they're just like you know what we don't just just stay away no (laughs) one's getting in this is an exclusive party oh my gosh there's the spiciest tree (laughs) i like that yeah (laughs) is this sort of adaptation of like growing thorns out of your if it's a tree i guess i suppose the bark is this at all related to cacti and the way that cacti grow spines you know that's a that's a interesting question so plants in general only have a few different types of structures okay they have roots they have stems they have leaves and they have uh fruits okay or reproductive structures flowers and fruits but then they take those and modify them in different ways so you've probably noticed like when you get a rose or something like a long stem rose you can just pop those little prickles off by hand right they come off real easy they're sharp but you can easily remove them those are actually modified leaf structures so their attachment to the main stem isn't really super strong you just pop them off and that's actually true of um, most cacti too which is why if you like find a cactus a lot of times you'll take some spines home with you Mm. right like a prickly pear or something like they break off real easy they're modified leaves some plants that have like big thorns, big long thorns, they're actually modified stems, they're branches that they just make pointy to kind of keep things away. So uh, with cacti, um, there's two reasons they made spines. One is protection. They live in really hot, dry climates and they're full of water. So (laughs) I say water, they're full of like wet tissue. It's not just like, you know, in in old cartoons, they would like cut the top off a barrel cactus and like dip out. Uh, It's literally just like a barrel of water. That's what that's how they were always represented. But it's really like this is going to be a weird description. Like if you were to eat like a really slimy, wet cucumber, like (laughs) that's like the consistency, right? So they animals will eat them and get water that way. So for one, they develop these spines to keep animals from just chewing on them all the time when they get thirsty. Uh, But two, they modified these leaves to be smaller and pointy so that they don't lose as much water to the environment. Like, so there's, they're less susceptible to evaporation and and all of that. So they made these leaves really tiny and then developed them into protective structures. Okay. I always think cacti are so neat because of how large they can grow in such dry environments. You know, you look at like a saguaro cactus and it's like... They're huge, yeah. (laughs) It's it's like towering up in the air and you think like, oh my gosh, how did you do that? It hasn't rained here in a hundred (laughs) years. Yeah. Well, and they have... You know, without getting too down on down in the weeds on this, they have a totally different like system of photosynthesis and metabolism mm. uh, than a lot of other plants. So they are specifically evolved to carry out photosynthesis a little bit differently. It's called cam metabolism for anyone that wants to Google that. Uh, but essentially, they they do photosynthesis and they metabolize differently to account for the hot, dry temperature. So they can still grow big. They can still do all the things they do. Mm -hmm. They just do it really slowly, and they just do it really efficiently. 
Mm. Is that why they do the bloom that's like once a year? Is it once a year that they bloom? Some cacti. Some cacti only bloom once a year. Um, some like agave and stuff like that only like bloom once in their lifetime. Uh, like the the century plant, which is uh, kind of like when people think about agave, it's usually probably what they think about. The lore is that it only blooms once a century. That's not really true. Uh, but they may take 30, 40 years to bloom. And then they bloom once and the plant dies because um, they have spent all of their energy to produce this big, giant, you know, 20-foot tall stalk with flowers on it. A lot of cacti, yeah, they have a fairly narrow bloom period um, because it's expensive, quote-unquote, for the plant to produce a flower. So they don't do it a lot. And then when they do, you'll you'll notice if you've ever seen a cactus flower that they're really showy. They're bright colors. They're fragrant. Because they're doing everything they can in that short time that they can bloom after a rain or whatever to attract as many pollinators as possible. Yeah. So they use their resources very wisely. I always think that like anything that thrives in the desert is like super fascinating to me because you were not dealt a fantastic hand. No. But yeah, because I was thinking about like thorns on other plants and how that relates to thorns on cacti. I have a contentious relationship with cacti. Yeah. Um, I've told you this, um, but I don't think I've ever said on this podcast that I went one time when I was really little, I was in second grade and um, I was in an art class. And for whatever reason, my second grade art teacher had the brilliant idea of having a decorative cactus on like her desk where she was going to be, you know, having a class full of second graders just <laughs> running around. And this was one of the cacti that's like, it's little and the needles on it are really thin and fine and white. And so they look fluffy and fuzzy. And so me being in second grade, I looked at it and my, my first thought was, I bet that's fake. <laughs> Cause I had been really interested in like trying to tell the difference between fake flowers and real flowers. Mm -hmm. So I saw it and I was like, I bet that's fake. I know how to find out. And I just grabbed it. Oh, like, no. With, like, I'm talking open palm, like, wrapped my whole hand around oh. this cactus. And then immediately was like, I made a huge mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I had my hand full of these little, these little fluffy white cactus needles. And I walked up to the teacher. I was like, I... Uh, help, help. <laughs> please help. 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 <laughs> and so she was like, you've got to be kidding me. Which I don't know how she didn't know that was going to happen. Um, she should have known better. <laughs> yeah. So they took me down to the nurse's office and the nurse had to call my mom. And my mom had to come down with a pair of tweezers. So she had to sit in the nurse's office at the school and use these tweezers to pluck little cactus needles out of my hand. She said it took hours. Oh, I'm sure it did. Pro tip for that uh, <laughs> is, is duct tape. Really? So if you put duct tape over it and then don't just pull it straight off, but kind of roll it and peel it off, it will mm. usually work most of those uh, spines out. Now, you're still going to put in some tweezer time, but the, the duct tape <laughs> works. I've done that. Is that a common concern for y'all getting a cactus needles stuck in you? I imagine that's probably like a daily occurrence. Uh, it happens a little bit. So we don't, we don't like where I live, we're desert-ish and so like some places you go out around here we do there are wild cacti but here at the greenhouse we have a cactus collection and yes yes i pull needles out quite a bit as we're in there watering or, or working with them like i have just come to terms that i'm probably getting stabbed whenever i'm working in there i even bought like big welder's gloves oh yeah to, it, they don't work no the, maybe, maybe like falconry gloves you think I, maybe <laughs> I don't know. Because uh, they're meant for that, like, piercing damage, you know? Like, they're true. meant to they're meant to block those, like, sharp claws and stuff. I don't know. Maybe falconry gloves. That's, that's a good thought. That could be something. And, like, but we've tried a couple different things, and it's just the, the cacti are just like, nah, that's cute. 
you know, <laughs> whatever. No, they, they're like, um, we've adapted to more serious than you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not impressed. No. So the next like category that we often rate our animals on, because we usually talk about animals, but we're not, um, <laughs> is ingenuity, which for us we define as behavioral adaptations. So things that this being, this creature, I suppose, is doing with their body to you know, solve problems that they might face. For animals, usually this is things like maybe using tools or the way they interact with other animals around them or the way they are able to, you know, figure out things that that pop up on the daily basis. For a plant, do you see a lot of things from plants that seem like they're like behaving in a certain way? Like, have you ever seen a plant like maybe responding to its environment or responding to a stimulus in a way that feels to you like what you could consider like behavior? That's an interesting question. I've thought about this probably more than I should. Uh, (laughs) You know, in some ways, yeah, I think, you know, the the one that comes to mind, the fastest is is carnivorous plants, which we kind of touched on before. And like everyone thinks of the Venus flytrap first, right? When I mm-hmm. say carnivorous plant, I think that's what everyone has in their mind. But again, to overcome the lack of roots, they came up with a mechanism to catch food. And so like a Venus flytrap is kind of like a little bear trap, right? It's got two pads with, and I, I realize that on this video that no one can <laughs> see, I'm doing things with my hands. Uh, but they have these two pads that have... um like fine, really drawn out leaf hairs at the end. And they've got little trigger hairs on the pads themselves. So when a fly or something walks in there, it has to touch a trigger on both pads. So like a drop of rain won't do it, but an insect crawling through there will. And then they snap shut. They're kind of like, they're sort of spring loaded. It's due to like water pressure and stuff, but they're spring loaded. And then those little hairs on the ends of the leaves will kind of knit together so that the insect can't get out. And so they have sort of a narrow range. Those hairs are small enough and far enough apart on the pads that an insect that's not going to essentially make a good meal probably won't trigger it. So they're going for bigger insects because it costs some resources to spring those closed. Uh, And that's where they get Mm -hmm. some of their nutrition. I think another cool example is plants with tendrils. So like a bean or or something that climbs up a structure or a grapevine is a great example uh, where they put out these tendrils that like curl around stuff, right? They, they use that to anchor themselves to a structure or to another plant and they want to grow up off the ground. One, because it gets their flowers and fruit farther away from creatures that might want to eat them and that just gives them a better chance of finding sunlight, all of that kind of stuff. If you look at a time lapse of one of these plants with a tendril looking for something to climb on. Essentially, that tendril looks sort of like a rope. Usually, they're bifurcated, kind of like a snake's tongue. And they'll just spin around in the air until they come into contact with something. And as soon as they do, that plant sends a chemical signal that all the cells on the side of the tendril that's touching something constrict, and the ones on the outside elongate. And so it starts curling. Hmm. And so everywhere it touches something, those cells contract and the ones opposite elongate. So like if you're growing a grape or a pea or a bean or something like that, you'll come out one morning and they've climbed two feet up your, you know, trellis or whatever you're growing them on because these tendrils actually move for, okay, for a plant, they move super quickly uh, to try to get you know, more sunlight, which is kind of like their food, you know, they're, that's their using their ingenuity, I guess, to get more 
food and get out of danger and all those different things. So they actually do have some movement and some adaptation that's not just like, I'm going to sit here and see what happens, you know? Hope this works out for yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Here's hoping for the best. You could really see like what I would consider the ingenuity of plants, which I don't know. It doesn't feel fair to give them like a rating for ingenuity. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if if you did, would you give them a 10? I mean, I think so. Not all plants, uh, but the ones that make it, you know, I think like a lot of things. Yeah, they've come up with some interesting strategies to survive and get food and, and keep living. When you look at a time lapse of a plant, I feel like that's where you can kind of see what the plant is like going for, you know, you're like, okay, what is your goal? You seem to have a goal that you are working <laughs> towards. Um, I don't know if this is something that I just have like floating around in the back of my memory. And I don't know if this is even a real thing or not. I'm imagining like when you look up at a canopy of trees where all the trees are all like close together and you see there will be like lines mm -hmm. where the leaves don't touch each other. What's that about? Okay. Is this real? I am, <laughs> yes. I am so glad you asked about this because this is one of my favorite like tree things. I love this so much. Mm -hmm. So that's a phenomenon uh, known as crown shyness. Okay. So the crown of the plant is usually like the top where the canopy is, all that. So plants compete for a lot of things, resources, water, space. But the biggest thing is sunlight. They compete with each other for sunlight. And if leaves kind of grow, like from two different plants, kind of grow all in and over each other, especially in like a big deciduous forest where these trees are about as big as they can get and they can't like just grow more to find more sunlight, they've kind of <laughs> reached their upper limit. They'll go through a process of not letting those leaves and those branches touch each other. And it is actually not real well understood. Plants actually have... And again, it's weird to say because it's so alien to us, but they actually have fairly sophisticated means of communicating with one another through chemical signaling, through different things. So one of the theories when you see crown shyness and and if if you're out there listening and if you haven't seen what we're talking about, you should just like Google a picture real quick because it's really cool. You can see it a lot here in Florida where we have forests with really, really tall trees. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see it when you like look up, you see the, the trees just not quite, just, just, I mean, just barely not touching just each other. Just <laughs> barely. You just see tiny little lines between them uh, of, of blue sky or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the one that maybe makes the most sense or is like the <laughs> low hanging fruit when we talk <laughs> about like, theories about this is just that those leaves like run into each other and knock some leaves off which generally if you knock off the end of a branch or the end of a twig um it'll branch right so as these twigs up at the top of the plants hit each other it knocks off those growing points and that plant starts to branch more and you get these dense canopies that sort of just branch away from each other and that makes a lot of sense because the wind blows them around it knocks all these off and that's that's probably a part of it. But plants absorb red and blue light, and they reflect green light. That's why they're green, right? Because they're throwing that green light back at you so you can see it. It's thought that some leaves, especially in these mature, uh, old-growth deciduous forests, actually do have green light receptors. Like, they're not just absorbing red and blue light. They can take in some green light. And it's thought that maybe those receptors that pull in the green light signal the plant that they're about to grow into another plant, and it causes them to grow in a different direction. Oh. So it's 
almost like they can see each other. Okay. And like if you're in a crowd of people, like you're going to end up bumping into someone, right? But if you can see clearly the people around you and you really don't want to be touched, you're going to do what you can to not be touched. And you'll see some natural like spaces between people and stuff or like a herd of cows running, right? They they somehow don't really run into each other very much. They're pretty good at that. And it's thought that maybe these plants can kind of see each other using their leaves, which is a little mind blowing. <laughs> really cool but you know if it's if it's that they're like looking for the green light right they're like okay there's a bunch of green over here there's something really green over here yeah (laughs) we gotta like go the other way yeah there's another plant i'm not gonna get as much of this red and blue light that i want so Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go somewhere else there where it's there's going to be more of it oh that makes a lot of sense because you know there's no reason for you to want to you know because when you're talking about animals a lot of times animals that that are competing for resources can be like territorial towards each other right where they might attack each other or do something to sort of like take out the competition but the trees are like i'm just gonna go over here there's plenty of light it's fine (laughs) (laughs) well and you you mentioned plants being territorial i want to talk just real quick about the black walnut so juglans nigra it is in the same family as like a pecan and a lot of other uh you know tree nuts so the roots of the black walnut and and the english walnut to a, a lesser extent produce a chemical called juglone, and it carries out something called alleliopathy. Essentially, it's a herbicide that is really toxic to some grasses and to things in the apple family, which is our rosids. They're in the the rose family. So it's thought that maybe in places where these plants live, there were almost invasive-like species in this apple family that were trying to get in there, steal resources, all of that. They're shorter trees. So actually, like pecan trees and walnut trees, if you look at an orchard, the understory stays pretty clean. Like there's some grasses that grow and some other things, but these plants just kind of produce their own herbicide that kill other plants. Plant warfare. 100%. Uh, <laughs> some trees, like if you look at a row of trees of all the, like, that are all the same species, you might notice that like four of them look great and one in the middle looks terrible and they're all the same and the conditions are the same. The roots will graft together and the healthier trees will actually steal resources from the weaker trees. Oh, man. And so like plants actually like they compete for resources in sort of an abstract way. Mm-hmm. But a lot of plants will directly compete with other individuals as well. And it's really interesting. They have their own like secret natural selection. They going do. On. <laughs> they do. That we don't know anything about. And and we can't even begin to understand right now. Oh, that's so cool. That reminds me a lot of when I started my first arrow garden. Uh Have you seen the arrow garden? Yeah, they're awesome. And we didn't, we don't know anything about anything. And so we just (laughs) filled that thing up, right? So we have a nine pod Mm -hmm. um, unit. And so we just put all nine seed pods in there. um, And they're like really tall plants. So they were like different types of like parsley and dill and things like that. And then after a little while realized that like the a few of them were doing really really well but the ones that were like in between them were dying yeah. and not growing at all and we were so confused we were like i don't get it like why what's what's happening here why are some of why is some of our parsley doing great and some of our parsley is dying um and i think you actually told me like oh you got to like space them out and like not have them so close to each other and put the shorter ones in a different area and i was like okay that makes sense now that you explain it <laughs> yeah it's just a, it's just a competition thing right they're doing what they can to Make sure they get the light resources and everything else. Space is like uh, available space is a big thing that plants compete for. It's really, really, really interesting. 
I think it's yeah, interesting. We were watching that play out in our living room. <laughs> As they were murdering each other in front of our faces. They do it. It's Yeah, it happens. It's a real thing. Cold-blooded. It is. <laughs> they take no prisoners. <laughs> Something that I talked about with um, Dr. Christopher Ma, who came in on to talk about sea stars, is that some life plays out at a much slower pace right. than humans are used to. So if you're just looking at it, you know, if I'm just sitting here looking at a plant, it doesn't appear to be doing anything. It's just sitting there. But then if you look at on the scale that its life is moving at, then there's much more drama to it, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot going on at the scale of time that they're working at. Yeah. There's a whole Game of Thrones plot line going on oh yeah they are they are patient and they are waiting for us to to kick it so they can decompose us they are they're the winners in the end i like to say that plants are at the bottom and the top of the food chain they're the whole circle yeah everything eats plants you know uh but eventually the plants get to take nutrients from those other things and so yeah. like they they kind of win in the end is that dark i don't know only if you're a human <laughs> It's one of those things that's like, oh, yeah, I mean, the planet's not going to die. No, no, they're fine. Just, we are. Yeah. Well, and it's like, I, I like to think I had a, a funny thought one day of like a field of grass with cows grazing and the grass is just like, soon, our time is coming. <laughs> Y'all just wait. Soon, brothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't mind <laughs> if they just took over. <laughs> you know, I played that video game Horizon Zero Dawn, uh -huh. which is like post-apocalyptic. And the best part of that game is like exploring the ruins of... It's set in Salt Lake City, I think. Okay. And so you're like exploring the ruins of all these buildings that have like crumbled. And there's vines growing up the side. And there's like plants growing up and around all of these old like decrepit structures. And that's like the plants are going to outlive everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and that's what I love old, like abandoned buildings that have like mm. a tree coming up through them. So good. It's really cool. That's the look. It is. It's so good. <laughs> and it's just like, I mean, and you see this in all kinds of movies and games. It's like, I am legend. You know, he's driving down the streets of LA or whatever. And there's like grass in the highway. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I think about how, a, we, you know, this is kind of going back to our first subject but plants adapt to so many different ecosystems and ecological problems like i think about uh, chernobyl where it's like oh we had nuclear fallout and mm -hmm. it's like oh the animals stayed away for a while and people like don't really go there and like you look at pictures and the trees are just like eh, eh whatever <laughs> i don't care the plants are like we can work with it yeah it's fine <laughs> don't we don't mind they're like, oh, this looks like a spot where nobody's going to eat me. Exactly. This is great. Yeah, they flourish. <laughs> sounds ideal, actually. Yeah. This is a good transition into the aesthetics category because, like, the whole man-made ruins crumbling and being reclaimed by plant life is probably my favorite, like, type of aesthetic. Yeah. It's so good. It's like um, if you played, like, Legend of Zelda uh, Breath of the Wild, where everything is, like, the temples are all falling apart and everything, and there's, like, moss growing over, like, the structures and stuff. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. I know that you've said before that you don't like roses. I don't. Oh, you don't Ugh. like roses, which is, like, I think probably what a lot of people think when they think of, like, aesthetic plants yeah you know like a pretty plant they're probably gonna think of a rose yeah i think we can do better than roses though what are your favorite like aesthetic plants oh gosh uh there are so many that i like i love so as far as flowers go i think my favorite flower is probably a dahlia mm. um they're big they've got tons of petals you know they're bright colors 
And I don't know, there's just something about them that's really cool. Uh, I like African daisies because they're kind of this cool ombre color and they'll have the centers. Uh, the, the center of an African daisy is really cool, in my opinion. The uh, female structures, the, the pistols, are like a deep blue. And they're usually ringed like all the way around that center with little star-shaped anthers that have the pollen. And then they have these radiating uh, multi-toned petals that start, you know, in one color and fade to another. And they're really just, for me, I love that that look. Mm. I think they photograph well. I think they're really pretty. Again, the bristlecone pine is my favorite tree. Probably not aesthetically. They look really cool. They, they, they do Like look cool. the, the twisty, turny trunks. I think it's neat. Yeah. I think one of my favorite trees that I like just like to look at is called a, a chitalpa. And it is a cross between a desert willow and a southern catalpa. Okay, it's a cross plant. But it has this really nice, like, arching canopy. It's got long branches that sort of, like, droop down towards the ground and kind of swoop back up. And it has these cool tube-shaped, almost orchid-like flowers that it's just covered in for months. Months and months. And it's it's a beautiful tree. I think I'm just thinking of plants that are, you know, around me here. And that's one of my mm. favorites. But yeah, I think roses are boring. I don't know. I get it. <laughs> I get bored. I get it. <laughs> I think they're pretty, but you know, they they do feel a little cliche, I guess. Yeah, it's you like know, we're like I'm it over does, it. I don't yeah, know. it feels a little dated. It's like this has been done. Well, and they're you know, they're so heavily bred. One one cool thing about roses is they are not easy to breed, but they take to breeding fairly well. So you can get lots of colors, lots of variation. Uh, you've probably seen some like marbled roses that have different colors in them. That comes from mm. a virus that affects the flower that they just oh. carried forward because it looked cool. Uh, oh. <laughs> doesn't really affect the plant too negatively. It just mm -hmm. changes the way the flower expresses. So they just took cuttings of that, moved it on. But because they're so heavily bred, they're susceptible to pretty much everything. Like if there's a plant disease your rose is probably going to get it. Mm. And uh, like, I, I'm just, I don't <laughs> is know. Is it worth it? <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not a huge fan. We've got a few out here and I just, we had a, it was sad. We had a, a disease come through and kill a lot of our roses or affect a lot of our roses. And I did hate to pull out some of those like really old, cool varieties. But like for my money, if I'm going out and planting like a flowering shrub, I'm probably not going to go with a rose. Yeah. I have seen pictures of flowers that mimic animals. Have you seen these? Yes. Like flowers that look like a bug? Mm -hmm. Have you seen these? These are wild to me. It's wild. <laughs> orchids do some really weird stuff. What are orchids? Are orchids okay? I don't know. What are they doing? <laughs> I, they're like, if a plant could get bored, like, it's like if you get bored with your hair and you're like, you know, I'm going to try something new. <laughs> It, it's like orchids are like, yeah, flowers are fine, but what if it looked like a monkey? Orchids are like when my seven-year-old knocks on my door and I'm like, what? And he's like, come check out what I did. And I'm like, like oh, oh, no. Oh, no. This, <laughs> this cannot be good. Mom, you're going to love this. <laughs> Look what I built. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to love it. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because I think as humans, we look for things that we recognize in everything else. Right. Like we're like, oh, that looks like a monkey. That looks like a duck. That looks like and it's almost like orchids are humoring us because like <laughs> if, if you Google the monkey faced orchid, they look just like monkey faces. It's so weird. And there's 
all these different things. And some of it is to attract like specific pollinators. There's some that look like bees or different insects. And so uh, when those bees or different insects try to get like in there to find the other insect, they're like, oh, great. Now you can pollinate me. Wonderful. <laughs> While you're here, um, pick up some pollen. <laughs> I, and I, I don't want to ruin the surprise too much, but I'm just going to tell you and everyone else a plant to Google. And it's called the bat-faced kufia, C-U-P-H-E-A. And I don't want to ruin the surprise. Just Just look it up. Okay, let's see here. Let's see what we got here. Nah, look at that. Right? Oh, but it's so cute. Right, and we have some like it grows in a lot of places. We have some planted out in our garden. It it does well in a lot of different landscapes. It can be hard to find, but it's really cool. And it's so cute. Yeah, and it, it looks like a bat. Wow, <laughs> what a sweetie! And I would think that if I were a bug. And I saw a bat's face. <laughs> I'd probably go the other way, right? Like, that seems counterintuitive to me. Be like, come here, bugs. It's a bat. Yeah. The thing that eats you. You know? Like, yeah, I don't seems know. so counterintuitive. But I guess bugs, you know, don't see the same way that we do. So, of course, that's just me being a human being. But... Right. But, you know, they're colorful and they they have a, an interesting landing pad. So they, um, you know, attract a very specific kind of insect. And But there's there's so many out there that just have these wild forms that I, I think would just weird people out if they if they really start to look at different um, different types of plants. It's funny because the flowers were evolved to be, I guess, not necessarily aesthetically pleasing in the sense that they're like enjoyable. Maybe they are. I yeah. don't know bugs. I don't know bug brains, but like they're meant to be attractive to bugs mm -hmm. because they pollinate them and everything. And it just like happened to also look nice to humans. You know that humans also saw it. We're like. Oh, I love that. <laughs> like, well, that's, you know, and that's a really interesting, like, evolutionary biology thing. Like, most insects can only see in specific color ranges. So their host plants tend to flower in those color ranges. Like, you know, uh, bees can see a lot of yellows and reds and stuff. So they'll, like, you see sunflowers and a lot of different things. And some insects can only see blue and they'll go after these certain. And so what's interesting is the amount of artificial selection pressure humans have put on flowers mm. just by liking how they look yeah right because you go out and you see a really attractive flower someone goes and picks it and then plants it in their garden and so i think the flowers that we have today are probably vastly different than what we would have seen fifty thousand years ago before the like agricultural revolution and all of that when mm -hmm. uh, you know hominids and humans started settling and uh, I, I don't know, but it, it's all about selection pressure. It's really weird. Yeah, That reminds me of when people talk about how the fruits and vegetables that we have now don't resemble the way they originally evolved, right. but they're the way they are now because they're the way that we like them to be. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I eat a banana, I think about that. Yeah. And how we're eating like a fake, it's like the pug of bananas. <laughs> <laughs> like it's been bred so specifically to be what we want them to be. Mm -hmm. Small seeds, you know, lots of sugar, uh, where wild bananas aren't really that way. They've got big black seeds in them and uh, a much lower sugar content. I'm thrilled with the result. Me too. I'm a fan. <laughs> But I definitely think about that every time I eat a banana. I'm like, this isn't what nature wanted. <laughs> no, no. But, you know, yeah, we've we've exerted a lot of pressure on the things that and it's not like I think I think we talk about this sometimes. And, and I, I talk about this with my class that it's not a bad thing. Right. Change is not always necessarily bad. And every organism 
puts selection pressure on other organisms around it, like whether it's mm -hmm. us or armadillos or I, I don't care, whatever you're talking about, we're all exerting an influence on everything else around us. Mm -hmm. And it's just that humans tend to take ourselves out of nature and we consider ourselves separate from it when we're kind of not. We're, mm -hmm. we're just weird apes that make podcasts <laughs> and like and, and go and, to wendy's and go to and wendy's and like watch youtube and leave terrible comments i don't know <laughs> like i'm not saying that we're doing the right thing but I, I just think it's interesting to think about how people view like change in nature there are no pristine ecosystems everything has had some kind of an influence on it and it's just mm -hmm. i don't know that that goes through my mind a lot I feel it. It is comforting to me, at least, to think of uh, humans, including myself, as like part of nature. You know, like we're still animals. We don't like to think of ourselves as animals, but we're part of it, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, with or without us, the planet keeps doing its thing. And mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it changes and we don't know what it'll look like in the future. Hopefully it's something that we're you know, we, we get to really see in and keep enjoying. And I think that there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good things to make sure that happens. And some of those awesome people that are out there doing amazing things for the planet are on your podcast, Planthropology. Uh, you want to tell people where they can find that, where they can listen to it? Uh, yeah. So Planthropology is just anthropology with a PL slapped on the front to make a pun. You know, we love a good pun here oh, on Just the Zoo of A hundred percent. So you can find it anywhere you like to get your podcasts. You can look it up at planthropologypod.com. And if you just search for Planthropology on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, look for the uh, green background with the br bristlecone pine, and that'll be me. And uh, I'm also, I decided at some point to take whatever was left of my dignity over to TikTok <laughs> and leave it there. And so I'm uh, at the plant prof on TikTok too. I use TikTok a lot. I don't like make things. I don't post things on TikTok, but I've learned so much stuff on TikTok. Like all day long, I'm always like, you know what I saw on TikTok? <laughs> and so, you know, especially that you're coming from a perspective of like having the knowledge and having the background in education that like you're the exact person that should be using TikTok, right? Like people are going to be out there posting whatever they want on TikTok. It's like you might as well yeah. put some good educational content out on there. And it's like, and it's very chill good follow it's really nice to like it always comes up on my like while i'm scrolling through it's always nice to hear hey nerds <laughs> like i'm like that's me <laughs> you know what's what's funny is uh, i know and i know we've got to wrap up but I, I struggled with how to open videos like for a while <laughs> and i was just like you know what i don't care the people that are really going to follow this and like it are nerds like me so i'm going with it we get it and it's like target audience reached yeah like, that's the goal <laughs> So good follow. Uh, Planthropology is always a good time. It's also an excellent vibe. It's a real chill show. It's really enjoyable to listen to. Um, and you've got some episodes on there, too, where you're just like sharing some plant science mm -hmm. and sharing some information about like plants of the world and plants and how they tie into culture and just some really cool stuff. So definitely a good follow. If you want to round out your ecological knowledge, you come to us for your animal facts. You go to Planthropology, get some plants facts, <laughs> just enrich your knowledge of the carbon-based world around you. <laughs> Well, I appreciate it. I have, a I have a lot of fun making it and uh, getting to hang out, you know, virtually with all of our nature podcast friends. So I, I, oh, yeah. it's been a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. I appreciate your knowledge, as always, your enthusiasm, your charisma. It's infectious. <laughs> of course, it's contagious. I feel like now... 
you know, I've learned a lot about plants, but also I, I think also cultivated a deeper appreciation of them. So thank you so much for sharing with us today and we'll catch you later. All right. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Bye. Bye. 